Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. For me, worship marks the beginning of my walk with Christ. At the age of 16, I was saved during a worship uh, ministry time. And it's a constant reminder of the commitment that I've made to follow Him. Um, It's passionate when I can feel the Holy Spirit moving through the room because ultimately worship is not about me. It's about Him and just praising and glorifying the Lord. I've been on a process recently to to rediscover uh, terms and uh, the true meaning of of these things that I've grown up knowing. and one of those is worship. And, and the first time it's mentioned in the Bible is when God is asking someone to sacrifice that thing that they hold most dear. And so uh, worship is truly an act of surrender. That's part of what uh, my dream is for the church is to help everyone break out and just really be able to surrender uh, everything they have in worship. Worship for me is a setting where everything I'm facing, feeling, experiencing rises to the surface. And I can become declarative with my struggle, but also declarative in my adoration of Jesus. Worship is where I can go to war with my hands up in surrender, but I come out victorious every time because I'm surrendering my will for His. There was this time in my life 10 years ago when I strayed from Him, but it didn't matter how hard my heart was or how far I tried to run because I became tender whenever I was in an environment of worship. Because for me, that's where I would always meet with Jesus. I ran back to him because of what would happen in those moments of worship, where I could be raw and real and he would meet me no matter how bruised and how defeated and broken I was. Worship isn't just singing songs or getting a really cool feeling in church, it's a lifestyle. Worship is giving back to God what he rightly deserves. Uh, We may not feel like we're worthy, but I always try to keep it in perspective. Uh, The creator of the universe, the one who named every star, died so that we could live someone who is so small compared to the universe like me uh, and he cared enough about me and all my faults uh, to make the ultimate sacrifice Uh, even though i don't deserve grace uh, or even his mercy he gave it to me regardless with all of that we have the opportunity and the privilege to praise and worship him uh, not for who we are but for who he is hey you like singing worship songs with your mom yeah What's your favorite worship song to sing with your mom? Jesus loves me. Yeah. Yeah. Don't we have some great worship leaders? God has God has so blessed us with four wonderful, talented, beautiful-hearted worship leaders, and more on the way. Elijah was just isn't he a cute kid? I'm so excited about what God is doing and blessing us in that arena. Uh, today we finish our message spirituality series, as Jeremy said, by talking about worship, about who and what we glorify most in life. Worship, though, is is messy, isn't it? As well, 
because it's defined in so many ways, different church traditions and cultures practice and define worship differently. People's preferences get into the mix and, and all, the, all the good and bad experiences we've had with it and uh, combined with so many questions about what really constitutes worship. In spite of all the messy baggage, biblically, worship and how we practice worship is vital spiritual practice uh, that cultivates our relationship with God. It, it helps us realign our priorities in life and we get to encounter God's Spirit in worship in ways that are amazing that go beyond what we can do individually. Uh, Before we go a little further, let me just give a little general credit. I'm actually going to borrow some of uh, structural ideas, outline ideas from Tim Keller, and I want to give him some credit. Uh, I've made it my own, changed some of it, adapted some of it, added some stuff, taken some stuff away, but I want to give him credit. Let's jump in. So let me ask this question. How many of you like cats? Yeah? Got quite a few hands. How many of you like dogs more? Quite a few hands. See, in my household, my kids know that if they want to have a cat, they need to move out. That's just the way it is in my house. Cats may be lovely in your home, but they're just not for me. I mean, years ago, there was a well-known missionary, Stephen Hawthorne, who... uh, it said the major difference between cats and dogs is this. Uh, dogs say, you feed me, you care for me, you walk me, you must be God. And cats say, you feed me, you care for me, you clean my litter box, I must be God. <laughs> There's kind of too much truth in there, isn't there, right? And maybe that's part of the reason I have a, a problem with cats is because they remind me of me that I can too easily make things about me instead of God in life. Of course, as I say that now, my kids are going to go, okay, Dad, so that means you need a cat because you need to be challenged to grow spiritually. Still not going to make the Christmas list. The Bible, Hawthorne says, is designed for dogs to help us worship God by really seeing how good he is. But instead, we read it like cats, and we turn the Bible into primarily, merely a self-help book. And certainly, God has lots of self-help for us in there, lots of help for us to provide us answers. But being a follower of Jesus is about relationship with God. It is centered in worship of God. And what we're going to see today is that worship is central to life, especially in how we face difficult times. So just think for a minute, how do you face difficult moments in life and in your faith? When you face difficult times, what do you typically do? For many, we pray, right? And we ask others to pray. And the way we pray is often referred to in kind of churchy language as petitionary prayers. We ask God to meet our needs, to solve our problems, to give us wisdom, to answer our dilemma. We petition God to resolve our troubles, Wendy and I this last week had a wonderful evening spending time with Tori, our new children's pastor, and her husband Thomas, and we were talking about spiritual practices and prayer and silence, having a really wonderful conversation about how we disciple people to hear God's voice and know Him. Uh, in the middle of the conversation, my, my mind wandered to how difficult, though, it can be to pray and make space for silence to hear God when I'm facing troubles. Uh, maybe it's just me. But uh, when I'm facing trouble and difficult things, too many times I ask God to resolve the problems. And the more I ask, the more I actually focus and think about the problem. When I try to create space 
to hear God and to think and, and find out what he's doing in the situation. Instead, my mind too often just starts spinning and running the problem over and over in my mind again. In both prayer and in silence, too often the pressures actually get heavier and peace seems to be elusive. So when that happens for me, I, I, there's sometimes I just want to silence the thoughts the feelings, the struggles. I just want to escape into TV or some sort of recreation, something to get my mind off the issues. Now, sometimes that kind of escape is perfectly healthy. We just need a break, right? But all too often I find in my own life that that escape isn't healthy because the escape, while it may soothe the trouble, it doesn't really bring peace And it just covers the trouble over. And in reality, if I'm really honest with myself, too often escape in that moment causes me to distance my heart in some way at some level from God. I think this is one of the big reasons why many of us actually struggle with prayer and silence and solitude in our life because the troubles that we're experiencing overtake those moments and dominate our minds and become magnified in those moments. So last week, Wendy made this point about the way the world views peace is, is, is it's a lack of something. It's a lack of conflict. It's a lack of war. It's a lack of pain. But, but the way God's peace comes to us is it's actually the presence of God. It's adding his presence to the situation to walk us through whatever we face in a healthy way. Here's kind of the big point today. We're going to explore the rest of the day. Finding peace in the difficult times of life often doesn't come for each of us through petitionary prayer, asking God for an answer, though that is important that we do that. So what does help us find peace in trouble? And I think the answer is this. We walk in the peace and presence and power of God in our lives during troubled times, for that matter, during all times in life, through worship, through worship. Psalm 95 is this rich chapter. It's kind of a long chapter. We're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to kind of break it down for the rest of the message. It says this, Come, let us sing for joy in the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. And the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So that's the end of the chapter, and this is kind of long, and, and at some points it may be kind of confusing, but let's break it down. Because it answers three core questions about worship. What is worship? Why we worship? And how we become skillful in worship. So, first question, what is worship? The psalm is written actually in four stanzas. The first three stanzas, verse 1, 3, and 6, give us the basis for the definition of worship, which is this. Worship is the act 
of assigning ultimate value to something in a way that engages and gives direction to our whole being. So years ago, the old English word for worship was actually worth-ship, that which we give the greatest worth to in our lives. And that can be God. It can also be something else. The definition also talks about worship engages our whole being, our reason, our will, and our emotions. So in verse 1, you see the emotions. In verse 6, in the language of submission, you see the will being talked about. In verse 8, we see our reasoning, our thinking, our logic being engaged. So here's the point. Why, Why is this definition important? Because if you go through something that you call a worship experience in your pursuit of God and you go through it as a ritual where you mouth the words, the doctrines, the beliefs, you sing the songs, but you're not moved with a sense of the grandness and the love of God. And if you worship and that worship doesn't change you, you haven't truly fully worshiped. So I I think about it this way. I, I can think about something intellectually. Uh, like truth about God's faithfulness to care for me in all circumstances. And yet, in that same moment while I'm thinking about that, I can be overcome with anxiety and worry about whether God is actually going to be there for me to take care of me in the big problem of my week that I'm facing that week. See, when I worship as God designed it, that intellectual truth touches my heart. It calms my heart from the anxieties. It frees me to think, feel, and act differently. And as I face those very problems of the coming week, I'm different in facing them because of the worship. Now, sometimes that experience is intense enough that that I may cry when I worship and encounter God in that way. But for me, I'm not a really emotional, expressive person. So more often than that, I walk away from those worship experiences and it's just kind of a, it's going to be okay kind of a feeling. And I walk out worrying less, acting differently as a result of worship. Worship is meant to transform us in our thinking, in our emotions, and in our will and our actions. Worship, as the definition says, is also the act of assigning ultimate value. So think of that this way. This is kind of an old modified preacher's, you know, generation, couple old illustration. It's, think of it this way. It's a woman inherited a beautiful necklace from her mother and who got it from her mother and who got it from her mother back many, many generations. It was it had the biggest, most beautiful rocks they'd ever seen. It was too gaudy to wear. It was a, a treasured family heirloom, and yet it sat in her jewelry box for years. One day when she was old, she was sitting down with her daughter and telling her the story of how this had been passed on from generation to generation. And as as they were sitting in the bedroom with the sunlight glinting off the beautiful stones and just spectacular look at, the daughter said, let's take a jeweler and get it appraised. So they did. They handed it to the best jeweler they could find, the oldest, most respected, most knowledgeable jeweler in the city. She put on her special glasses to inspect it, paying attention to the cut and the clarity and the size, the colors and uh, that were all reflected by the light. And after several minutes of looking at it and looking back and looking at it and looking back, the jeweler sat back with just this sigh, this excitement, this sense of awe, smiling, not saying a word. And all of a sudden she gets up, she scurries over to a bookshelf, looks in the book and examines something for several minutes and all of a sudden comes back and carefully more vigorously examines the necklace again for a long time. Maybe making all sorts of admiring types of sounds and gasps, she finally spoke saying this, this piece of jewelry is this lost 
piece of royal jewelry from centuries ago. It is priceless. The reason this jeweler was so emotionally engaged with her mind and her actions is because she recognized that the value she held in her hand of this single piece of jewelry was more valuable than all the other pieces of jewelry she had ever put in her hand together over the 40 years of her career. And the woman who owned the necklace was also stunned, overwhelmed, realizing she had not been living in line with the true value of what she had. You see, for most of us, even most Americans who are followers of Jesus, we relate to God in the same way as this woman related to her necklace, very unaware of the ultimate priceless value of God in our lives. See, the difference between kind of a so-so, ho-hum, kind of it's an okay kind of life and faith and, and one that finds us transformed by encountering God and His power and the goodness and, and full of love and joy and peace is this spiritual practice of worship. So Christian worship, let's modify that definition slightly, is this. It's the act of rightly assigning ultimate value to God in a way that God's presence and power transforms the way we think, feel, and act. So that's what is worship. So the next question, why do we worship? And that answer is actually found in verse 3. Because the Lord is, is the great God, king above all gods. Now, we may not relate to that uh, because the statement's written to an ancient culture that worship many gods, the river god, the sky god, the earth god, and we don't do that. We're smarter than that today. We don't worship those gods, so it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal to us. But listen, each and every one of us, whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, or whether you are even an atheist, each and every one of us is already assigning ultimate value to something. And therefore, each and every one of us is worshiping. See, the world isn't divided between those people who worship and those people who don't. The world is divided between the people who worship something that is not of ultimate value and the people who worship the one and only who is of ultimate value. But every single one of us worships. And we will never be able to truly worship God and relate to Him until we recognize that our heart is already, even right now, assigning ultimate value to something. And even if we are followers of Jesus, our heart is often not truly assigning that ultimate value to God, but to something else. And that worship of something other than God is the source of so many of the anxieties and problems in our life. Therefore, worship for us is the constant reassigning of ultimate value back to God. There are a lot of people who say, I'm not religious, but that's simply not true. There is something to which you ascribe ultimate value, and that something, when push comes to shove, orients your life and your decisions. It is your religion. The only question is, is it God Or is it something else? Whatever that thing is, it controls you. It drives you. You submit to it. It drives your thoughts. It drives your emotions and affects your emotions and determines your actions. If it's power, you are controlled by power. If it's sex, you are likely addicted to sex or porn or some other sexually oriented stuff. Is it pleasure? Is it being a good mother or father? If it is and that's not going well, then you freak out. If it's money and that's not going well, you freak out. 
You see, your ultimate problem in life, all of our ultimate problems in life, are problems of worship in life. If you are consistently struggling with anxiety and depression over what people may or may not think of you, the only way to find freedom is to reassign your worship from others' opinions of you to God's opinion of you. See, ultimately, if you worshiped God at all times perfectly in all things, you would be perfect. But the reality is none of us are. We all sin. We struggle from minute to minute with worship problems, and it's only in pursuing God who forgives you readily and worshiping him knowing how precious, great, good, powerful he is and constantly reassigning to him the ultimate value in our lives that we find freedom from those controlling desires in our lives and instead we begin to learn to walk into health and balance and goodness and love and peace and freedom. So, since worship is that central and important to finding peace and joy and love, then the question becomes how do we become skillful in worship? So I recognize that some of you, that word skillful may kind of put you off because it kind of triggers in you this religious works performance pressure reaction. So maybe think of that word this way. To have a great marriage, a great friendship, great relationships at work, you have to develop certain internal self-management skills, knowing how to process your own internal reactions and needs and, and stuff and let them out in healthy ways. You also have to have certain relational and communication skills in order for your relationships to be the best they can possibly be. So maybe think of them in that light. So let's talk about five brief things that will develop your skill or your habits of healthy worship. The first one is this. Certainly we worship individually in many ways, but this text emphasizes how important it is that we worship in community. Now, our English translations, uh, this is easy to miss. This entire psalm should actually be uh, translated by Texans, uh, Jeremy and uh, Thomas, and I don't know how many other Texans we have here, because uh, all every single you in this text is actually y'all. It's plural. Personal transformation happens more often in community than individually. And God's presence shows up more often, more powerfully, in community than individually. It's the reason we say relationships are the mission. It's the reason we say it's impossible to have a vibrant faith, a vibrant church experience outside of friendships. And though I don't say it and extend it this explicitly this often, it's the reason why God appoints us to have churches where we gather to meet and worship and encounter God together to be transformed and sent out Uh, into this world to transform the world with his power and his presence. So C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest thinkers and writers of last century, uh, you may have heard this before, had two really close friends, Ronald and Charles, uh, and and Charles suddenly passed away. And in his grief, Lewis wrote that that he was terribly sad, but, but he took comfort in the fact that he would now know Ronald that much better. But what he discovered was that there were parts of Ronald that only Charles brought out and that now with Charles gone, he didn't get to experience those pieces of Ronald. So in the end, not only did he not have more of Ronald, but after Charles' death, Lewis knew less of Ronald, his friend. 
So just like Lewis knew Ronald better by what Charles brought out of him, bringing, coming to a place with people of various backgrounds and ages and giftings helps you experience and see God in essential ways that you can't on your own. You see, individual private faith prevents you from fully knowing and worshiping God. The second skill in worship is we engage and declare the truth. So as you read the psalm, the psalmist is very much relying on the truth of Scripture as the focal point and guide of worship. The writer doesn't say, I hope this is God. No, he's declaring the truth of what he knows God is from Scripture. He says, God is our rock of salvation, our only solid hope. God is above all other gods. There's nothing greater than God. No problem, no power, no thought, no idea, no authority greater than him. God is our maker. We're not our own makers. God is our shepherd, and we are his people. We're his flock that he cares for and brings us to safety and provision and to beauty in life. And within that, there is this language of submission to God's truth. See, only when we submit to the truth of Scripture are we able to actually even take an honest inventory of our lives and challenge ourselves to believe and grow and act in accordance with the truth, even in the face, especially in the face of when everything seems to be pressing against us and there's problems. But the problem is, for many of us, we don't trust Scripture. We don't treat it as truth. Oh, we pursue spirituality wanting a deep spiritual experience, but... We also want to decide what is and what isn't truth. I like this part of the Bible, but, but I don't like that part. I, I love that the, the Dalai Lama says this, so let's, let's add that in. I, I, this person, sound, what they say sounds really great, so let's add, add that in. And we, we choose our own truth. And, and when you do that with your faith, you will end up with t- three inescapable problems. The first problem is you aren't worshiping the living God. You are worshiping the God of your creation. No different than the ancient peoples who made idols out of wood to worship. Yours only take on mental and emotional form, not wooden form, but it's no different. Second, your faith is impotent to challenge you. You see, if you throw out the scriptures that you don't like, you no longer let God challenge you or you push you to grow. All you have is your own mental framework that you already agree with. So there's no challenge left in your life that faith can bring. Third, when you design your own individual faith, you cut yourself off from any meaningful, deep spiritual community. A few years back, I traveled to Russia to visit our missionaries and work with the churches there. And even though we were in a completely different culture, completely different languages, because we were all intent on submitting our lives to the truth of God and God's scriptures, we had deep, meaningful community instantly. That was bigger than our differences. But you see, if your faith is all about you, designed by you, and no one else in the world then has those same exact commitments to truth, and you end up isolating yourself from any kind of community that can effectively challenge you to grow. So there's a second part to this point, which is worship is actually declaring truth. It's extolling how great God truly is which actually is the reason that takes us all the way back to the very beginning, why petitionary prayers, asking God for answers, that if we do that, it can easily put us into this negative cycle of of problem focus and lead us to discouragement and the feeling of need to escape rather than peace. You see, worship 
instead actually leads us to peace because it is the reorienting of our heart and our mind through active worship, reorienting our actions back to trusting who God is and declaring the power and goodness and love and patience and forgiveness of God over us, over other people, and over our circumstances. Instead of being problem-focused like prayer often is, worship is declaring the true glory of God and focusing on the positive, not our problems. If you're like me, some of you need to be challenged to maybe get more of the worship in your regimen because you've been getting caught in those negative cycles and God wants to break you out of that by letting you begin to declare his praise and encounter his presence in that. So instead of just praying, God, please heal so-and-so or please give me wisdom or please bring justice, we worship God declaring, God, you have won the battle. You are bigger than all the problems. You have guaranteed the outcome. No authority can stand against you before you. You are good. I worship you. I submit my will to yours. I trust your goodness. I trust your strength to carry me through. You are loving and kind. You have proven yourself in history and in my life over and over again. You see, worship is a declarative reorienting to the person of God, his glory, his goodness, his power, and it results in encountering his presence and his presence brings peace. So third, worship's focus is on encountering the Holy Spirit. Now, I get it. If you read this closely, the word spirit doesn't appear anywhere in the core text that we read today, but the Holy Spirit is nonetheless still there in the text's emphasis on the fact that worship is about coming into the presence of God. Verse 2, let us come before him. Verse 6, let us kneel before him. And the closing part of it is all about hearing his voice. Very personal, presence-oriented language. Now, I also get from that that God is everywhere. And some might be thinking, well, if he's everywhere, then how do we come into his presence? Because we're already into his presence. So what on earth does that mean? What this and other texts show us is that though we are always in God's presence in worship, especially corporate worship, God's presence often comes in more tangible, powerful ways. His kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven among us, and we experience So if you come to corporate worship on Sundays and all you're looking for is a little bit of inspiration, nice music to give you a little encouragement, you're not focused on the right, most important things. God wants you to come here to meet with him, to encounter his presence and to glorify his name. See, it's not really about you. It's not about what you like and don't like. It's about God. Come seeking his presence and his power, expecting to encounter God. Fourth, in order to worship, to be fully engaging in our thoughts and feelings and actions, we engage in emotive, meaningful singing and expressiveness, this text teaches us. See, it's become popular over the last couple of years to de-emphasize singing uh, when we talk about worship and broaden what worship is. And what's being taught when we teach about that broadening of worship is, is, is really true. You can worship God in quiet. You can worship God through journaling and art. You can worship God while you're doing the dishes or mowing your lawn or running. You can worship God in a conversation with a friend. You can, you can worship God through your giving. You can worship God through your acts of service. But singing, music, God has created that as a vital part of worship. Why? 
Well, I actually think Adam Russell, director of Vineyard Worship, puts it really short and sweet better than I can, so let's turn our attention to him on the screen. Yeah, well, part of the reason we sing, like, as human beings is because, well, songs are all about overflow. So if you can't say it, or if you can't capture what you are feeling emotionally or intellectually with the spoken word, and once you move beyond even shouting, something as visceral as shouting, the only thing that's left is is singing. So this is why all the songs in the world pretty much are either about getting the girl or losing the girl. And when it comes to worship in particular, part of what we're doing is um, we're acknowledging that there is something about God that moves beyond what we can just say with simple language, that to approach God is to enter into, uh, as Heschel says, the ineffable. And this is where singing comes, uh, and it creates a container for us for the more. So as worship leaders, part of what we have to understand is is that we are providing the church with a container uh, to express and to experience and to connect with um, that which cannot be said, that which is more than spoken words, um, and a person who is uh, bigger than one simple idea. And so uh, that's why these little moments that we're, con- that we're approaching on Sunday morning, uh, 20 to 30 minutes of singing, this is not just some window dressing on an otherwise uh, less important part of the meeting. This is sometimes the meet and maybe one of the very best ways to meet with God. So you may or may not like the music, but the psalmists don't say anything about styles or likes. They just consistently invite us to jump in, regardless of what we like or don't like, to sing, to shout, do whatever is genuine to you, but maybe pushing yourself at times to be a little more expressive than you're comfortable with. We're not going to try to hype anything. We want to be real to who we are. Uh, so it's going to look different for each, other, uh, each of us, but to reverence the goodness and glory of God with the way we respond. Fifth skill, we worship to enter into gospel rest. Uh, This may not make a lot of sense right now. When we look at the last few verses of the psalm, it can become confusing as well, even dark and depressing until we understand it when it talks about do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah and Massa and they shall never enter your rest. All that's referring back to centuries ago, the Israelites' uh, exodus out of Egypt. While they were in this, still in the wilderness, they were still facing tough, lean times. They were longing for rest of entering the promised land. They wanted to make homes. They wanted to finally settle down into the good life. We know that the first generation of Egypt was disobedient and faithless, and they all, the result was they all died in the wilderness, but never entering the promised land rest. But the second generation actually entered the rest of the promised land. So the question is, why this reminder here, now centuries later, that after entering the rest of the promised land? What's that all about? And in fact, that very same question is asked in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, where Hebrews is referencing the psalm we've read today, that the Israelites in the Exodus were living in this transitionary world, longing for a home in the promised land. So also, we live in this unfinished transitionary world And for all of us, there is this deeper rest in life that you and I are meant to enjoy living in even now. Hebrews puts it this way. It says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later in this text we talked about today. Why is that asked centuries later about another day? 
There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. See, the good news of Jesus is this. He came to spiritually let us enter that rest from our works. Religion says what? You have to, I'm using it in a negative term. Religion says you have to work hard to be good enough. And, and, and when we were do, are good enough and we're acceptable enough, then God will bless us. But the gospel says the exact opposite. It says Jesus perfectly has forgiven us, offers that forgiveness as a gift so that we can be fully accepted right now, right where you are. You don't have to fear rejection. You don't have to earn God's blessing. You get to live in his blessing even in your yet imperfect state right now because you are loved. So you can rest from the pressure of working hard to be good enough and live from a place of being loved, accepted, and treasured right now. So, the reality is if you're religious, you strive to be moral, exceptional person, and you work really hard so that God will bless you. But if you're irreligious, what's, what, what about you? You also work really hard to fulfill whatever ultimate value you thing you have assigned your life to, whether it's being cool, successful, good-looking, fit, powerful, wealthy, liked, or whatever it is. Regardless of what that ultimate value is in your life, what is driving you underneath all of it is... If I do this well enough, then I'll be somebody, I'll be acceptable, and then I can experience the goodness of life. See, the gospel ends all that tiring, draining pressure in your life. You are already accepted, already treasured, already loved. You are already somebody. You are God's kid. So, why is this reminder of gospel rest at the end of this psalm that teaches us and models worship for us? It's because this, if you don't live in gospel rest in your life, then all you're going to do is turn worship into another thing that you have to work hard to do and check off your list to earn God's presence and earn God's blessing. If that's the case, then worship will become more work than it is enjoyment. It'll become more of an achievement thing, and you'll be driven by the thinking, if I just come to worship, if I sing and shout well enough and raise my hands right, if I pray the right words and pray enough, then God will show up. He'll heal me. He'll heal my friend and bless me in my business. And instead of worshiping, transforming you with freedom that comes from declaring God's truth and encountering his presence and his love, it will just be a weight to you. And once that happens for you, worship will be a performance and you will start evaluating every worship experience as a performance. You will start demanding that that worship entertain you, make you feel something, and you will start to become critical of the method or the style of music, and you won't really be pursuing God and serving God in worship. Instead, you'll be pursuing whatever you think is the it factor of what is cool, relevant, entertaining, or inspiring. And you'll be looking to yourself in worship or to the people on the stage to inspire you and not God. The sad result of that? 
is you will live a life that will be lacking in the fullness of joy and peace of God's presence. You'll just have a fake knockoff version of what true worship really is. Let me close with this. Worship can become the most powerful, reorienting spiritual practice in your life. And and Lord of the Rings, a story from that kind of helps me frame this. Uh, One of our most beloved characters of our family from the Lord of the Rings is Samwise. Who doesn't love Samwise, the faithful friend of Frodo? There's this point in the journey where Frodo is actually just tired. He's just so despondent. He's overwhelmed with the impossibility of the journey and the danger surrounding him. He's just ready to give up. And in that moment of desperation, Sam, unable to sleep due to all the anxiety and fear that he's facing in those circumstances well, goes outside of where they're at and he looks up in the sky and he sees a star. And in that moment, Sam experiences hope and inspiration as he comes face to face with the fact that there is light, there is beauty, there is power that is far beyond me or any of these circumstances. Sam encountered the glory of the ultimate beyond himself and the result for him, which I think is a result for many of us in life as well, is the troubles he and Frodo were facing. Even the fate of his very own life became smaller in comparison. And the troubledness of his heart and his spirit calmed and he slept peacefully even though the danger surrounding him had not changed. See, when we face difficulty, we can face it defiantly in our own control saying, I'm just going to get up. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to resist it. I'm going to kick in high gear. I'm just going to work harder because I'm not going down. But Samwise and the authors of the Psalms show us a power of worship to engage God in a different way, to find peace, even in the middle of our struggles. So even if you face the unknown of today or this week, whether, whether you've got questions about what's going to happen with your job this week or, or questions in your family or somebody's going through a surgery, what's going to happen with that surgery through worship? You can live through those moments with peace and joy, knowing and experiencing that God is light, goodness, beauty, and power. He is so much greater than all the evil or trouble in this world. Through consistently reassigning ultimate value to God in declaring praise in expressive ways that engage your whole being, you will walk into peace and transformation of your lives because God's presence will become more and more tangible to you as you encounter Him. So today in our flipped service order where we're doing more of the worship at the end, would you stand with me right now and allow this time to be a time when you fully, whether you feel like it or not, whether you like the music or not, where you fully engage with all of who you are and worship to God, allowing your declarations to glorify God, to transform your thinking and your feeling and even your behavior so that if you walked in today with anxious and troubled and fearful in some area, facing something in your life that is struggle for you right now, that you walk out of here today having encountered God and with a deeper sense of peace. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd come and that you'd do that right now with us. Lord, even as we feebly give whatever worship we know how to give to you, would you be glorified? Would your presence come? 
would you teach us to look to you and allow our hearts and our minds and our lives to be reoriented by who you are, by your presence with us, that we can walk in your peace and your power. So we just worship you, Lord. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.